Welcome to the latest edition of the Sibsi Journal podcast. This edition, we're talking about decarbonisation of cooling. Space cooling accounted for nearly 16% of the global building sector's electricity consumption in 2020, according to the International Energy Agency. So there's no doubt that global demand for space cooling and the energy needed to provide it will continue to grow for decades to come. The demand for cooling is expected to triple by 2050. So it's imperative that we decarbonise cooling now. Today, we will be discussing the challenges of decarbonising cooling across the lifetime of the building. So we'll be looking at the challenge of reducing both operational and embodied carbon. So today, we are unfortunate to have four leading experts on this topic. We have Matteo Dallombra, who is Product Commercial at Dakin UK. Andrew Mitchell, who is Head of Sustainability Operations Director at MACE. Carl Collins, who's a Head of Digital Engineering at SIPSI and a former engineer at Arab. And we also have Clara Bagnard-George, who's an associate at Intraber, formerly Elementor, and a leading light at Letty, the London Energy Transformation Initiative, which she helped initiate, was that in 2017, about that time? Yeah, that's right. Clara also co-authored TM65, a calculation methodology for estimating embodied carbon in building services, which also applies to air conditioning and cooling products. So that's a topic we'll be covering today. Right, so we're going to start really by asking what is the biggest challenge for everybody in the room around decarbonisation of cooling and, and air conditioning and I guess the person who it affects the most immediately in their day-to-day job is Matteo. How is it affecting Dakin? Well, there's no doubt that it's it's becoming the sort of foremost topic in pretty much everything that we do. Uh, the good thing is that although for some might be a new topic. For us, it's something that we've been dealing with for, for many, many years in the past. And that's because fundamentally it revolves a lot around refrigerant and which refrigerant you use, in which applications, for which systems, and so on and so forth. And luckily, uh, sort of as part of the, the, the larger Daikin group in terms of Daikin industry, we also have a section that deals just with refrigerant in terms of the manufacturing of it, in terms of the chemistry and learning about refrigerant. So we are absolutely well equipped to sort of deal with these challenges. We've seen in the past, and again, we've seen it today and probably into sort of the shorter future is going to be becoming even more sort of relevant, which refrigerant you choose. So that's why we've been doing a lot of investments, a lot of research in which is the best refrigerant for the perfect applications. But for us, at the end of the day, yes, the uh, sort of embodied carbon side of things is uh, sort of extremely important, but it cannot be the only sort of driver. So whenever we sort of assess, for example, what is going to be the next refrigerant, uh, and so, for example, why we settle on uh, R32 as the, the next refrigerant for the vast majority of our application is because fundamentally we need to answer to four criteria at the same time, uh, which is the safety of the refrigerant, the, the fact that the resulting equipment is economically viable for the market. It must be, of course, better for the environment, and it also needs to deliver increased efficiencies compared to whatever was there before. So only once you find something that satisfies all these four criteria, then you can say, yes, that's going to be the one that we will use to sort of to move the technology forward. And this is why we jump, for example, from our 148 to our 32 as being sort of the leading refrigerant for all our application because we were able to meet all these four criteria at the, at the same time. And of course, doing that, sort of making that jump, allowed us to strongly deliver on the promise of reducing embodied carbon because 
because of the fact that you can leverage a refrigerant which has a much lower global warming potential compared to before. And of course, it allows us to make our products slightly smaller, slightly lighter, so we use less material, which again, it also contributes to, uh, to that discussion. And certainly, the other key element that keeps us on our toes, in a sense, is the fact that from the, from the markets, from the rest of the industry, we're starting to get more and more questions about what are you doing and sort of where are you going and how can you demonstrate in practice that you're taking sort of action to change things and to make changes. And so things like the TM65 uh, certainly kickstarted a lot, a lot of conversations, um, a lot of sort of further changes because it finally sort of gave us a way to sort of 100% demonstrate that, yes, we are making a difference with the action and with steps that, that we are taking to, for example, adopting um, adopting R32. It does also sort of give us an opportunity to understand even ourselves a bit better because it essentially gave us a framework to sort of fully uh, analyze our entire supply chain uh, because, of course, that's what you have to do in order to get to the results. Um, so I'm sure that sort of the the guys and girls back at the factory that uh, sort of crunch all these numbers, uh, they, they sort of learn quite a lot about how our supply chain works, and I'm sure it would have informed sort of better changes to how they manage that sort of flow of materials and, and operation at that, mm. that stage. And just to be clear, TM65 is a calculation methodology that SIBSI have written. Yes, um, absolutely. And we're very lucky here today because we have uh, Clara who was a, a co-author That's right. of TM65 and there's other documentation as well out there and guidance that that helps you come to uh, figures for embodied carbon when you're calculating it for your know, whole life of a building. And yeah, how does TM65 fit in with the others out there such as um, the, the RICS carbon assessment yeah. and, and also um, the upcoming net zero carbon building standard? So we have the RICS Whole Life Carbon Assessment for the Built Environment, which uh, has recently just been published in its second edition, uh, which I was also involved as part of the authoring team in, which was really great to focus on updating that document, making it much more kind of robust and supporting consistency across embodied carbon calculation across the whole, um, all built environment assets. And this methodology points towards SIBSI TM65 for embodied carbon calculations of building services where no EPDs are available, which is exactly the intent of the document. So it's saying, and, and an EPD is a... And it's a good, good acronym. Uh, <laughs> EPD, Environmental Product Declaration. And it is a certificate so that the supply chain uh, can understand the environmental impacts of a certain product. So that includes global warming potential, which is about greenhouse gases, but it also includes other environmental indicators such as acidification and things like that. So the SIBCTM65 provides a map for calculating the embodied carbon when there's no EPD, and it just focuses on carbon emissions. So those two documents, the RICS, Whole Life Carbon Assessment for the Built Environment, and SIBCTM65, together provide that framework for assessing the embodied carbon of a whole building. And then the net zero carbon building standard, which I'm part of the technical steering group of, is assessing what's the level of performance that buildings need to meet in order to be aligned with the 1.5 degree limit in terms of global warming temperature rise. So we've got methodology on one side and then we've got the targets. So the net zero carbon building standard is developing what will be the embodied carbon limit for 14 different building typologies. 
And of course, within that whole building, embodied carbon will be the embodied carbon associated with the building services. Fantastic. And I guess let's move to Andrew. I will go back to TM65 later and so there's Carl from SIPSI will tell us a little bit more about a verification initiative that's coming soon, which will help validate the numbers that manufacturers are coming up with about their products and the embodied carbon within. So Andrew, you're working as a contractor, obviously at MACE, but you're working on the client side. And what's it looking like from your perspective? The pressure to decarbonise, are you seeing TM65 and embodied carbon being a big driver for your buildings? Uh, absolutely. So it's, it's coming from two directions at MACE. Um, we've got some really aggressive corporate targets, which help drive the business into a common vocabulary of carbon. Okay, We've put out there that we're going to save our clients on behalf of our clients, of course, the consultancy and the construction arms, 10 million tonnes of carbon by 2026. Um, we've just upped that target. We originally set 1 million tonnes, but we've, we've exceeded that. So there's that big push, and I'm part of that driver that I'm being kicked to ensure that occurs. But at the same time, we're getting from client side. You know, to win work, we need to have a robust and competitive carbon offer. So that's embodied and operational. But... Um, We've done really well with the embodied. We understand what we are doing. But generally, that's been around the substructure and superstructure. Unfortunately, the elephant in the room has always been the MEP. We haven't had the quality of data to support our arguments around that piece. And that's why we welcome TM65. That's why we welcome SIBS's input into what's been going on in the last two years, etc. We are signing up to contractual agreements with clients to achieve certain embodied carbon targets. If we do better, we make more money. If we don't, we, we get penalised. So it's really important for the business to understand data quality. And that feeds down into our supply chain. So this summer, we've done a big push of our supply chain, an educational piece and a request piece to offer us low carbon solutions, offer us low carbon products. And that means talking to Dakin, them understanding what Dakin are offering, and obviously their competitors as well, and introduce that into our business. You know, our supply chain have got that school of knowledge, they've got the contacts bigger than we will ever have. So what we're trying to get is a documentary proof into us so whether that's EPDs, as we've already discussed, a TM65 assessment, etc., just to give us that knowledge base so we can collaboratise this information. And that supports our bids and that supports our procurement strategy to obviously drive the carbon down. And in terms of calling, do you have a particular view or are you leaving it to the supply chain? We look to our support from the consultants, uh, to our m &E consultants to make the best solution around that, but we challenge them. You know, we challenge them. We say, look, can we not re use recyclable coolant? You know, that's an easy one. We've Mace at the moment, we're talking a lot about circularity and trying to get that into the narrative around the business with our clients and with our supply chain. So, no, we challenge them. Wherever we get an opportunity, why aren't we doing this? Matteo, are you feeling that challenge? Absolutely. It's it's one of sort of the one of the main driver in terms of uh, sort of what we're trying to do at Daikin. And it's not just with the products, but it's how can we almost augment the products with a series of services that sort of can work with the products, can work with what the customer wants to try and achieve. All at the end of the day, with sort of the common goal of supporting the strategies of lowering sort of the carbon footprint and sort of going toward that uh, that net zero target. And 
again, we just mentioned circularity. Uh, it's very close to us in terms of what we are trying to do, which sort of just relaunch a full sort of suite of services under the brand of Climate 360, which is our representation of what a strong circular economy strategy should look like. And for us, it means taking care of our products from the moment they are still at the factory, like at their sort of other inception, all throughout the lifetime, and then also at the end of life, making sure that as much as possible gets reused, recycled properly. So not just the refrigerant, but also the physical equipment itself, because there is a huge amount of incredibly resource-heavy materials in terms of raw materials in there. So the more we can avoid them having to be remanufactured brand new, and the more we can reuse those components. I'm thinking even just sort of the amount of magnets, rare earth magnets, which are inside the compressors. Mm. Um, yes, in Japan, I've just seen some studies where they're trying to move away from those, and they just got some, some award on some new technology, but that's some, some years away. But in the meantime, the more we can sort of reuse those components, the better, certainly. How does that uh, work in be. practice and actually getting the kit back? Um, so we are just in the in the launch phase for, for a new service, which uh, we're calling Climate 360 Recycle, which will be available within the next few months to our sort of general customer base. We're just about to launch a trial. But fundamentally, we're working with a partner company and we will essentially be able to put our customer in touch with, with this uh, recycling company. And they will be the one sort of physically showing up on site or providing scapes or essentially opening up their recycling center so that the equipment that comes there they know how to handle this specific equipment they know how to properly sort of breaking it down making sure that all the components are properly recycled and sort of sold through again and, and sort of find second and, and third life and this is essentially learning from what we did with refrigerant because we started this process with reclaiming refrigerant about five years ago now uh, with our partner Agas and again in that sense they will be the ones sort of physically going on site recovering all the gas but also then being responsible for cleaning the gas eventually rebalance it if it's a sort of it's a gas made of different components so it goes back to the proper uh, sort of chemical compositions and then it's sort of reissued on the market or for example in our case it is used as the factory charge now, just to give you an example, all the R14A that is used as factory charge for systems manufactured in Europe for the European market, it's now 100% reclaimed. And it's been like that for the past three years now. We are already looking at R32 and recycling and using that recycled uh, and reclaimed R32 as factory charge. Not with the same sort of scope at the moment, just because there's not enough that sort of came back, since sort of R32 is still, quote unquote, newer compared to our Fortuna, just in terms of how much it's it's out there that can be reclaimed and reused. But we already started doing with the amount that we got. Uh, for example, some of the chillers which are manufactured in Italy, they do come with reclaimed R32 as factory charge. And for us, it's, it's critical to our continued success, to the continuation of being able to expand our manufacturing capability. The more we can rely on that reclaimed gas, uh, the easier it's going to be to sort of continue growth, considering what you mentioned at the very beginning, that growth in demand, uh, we don't see that slowing. And with sort of some of the changes to legislation that sort of are some, some of them already happening, some of them soon to be happening, being able to leverage that reclaimed gas is going to be critical for the success of the entire industry and, and being it, able to satisfy the demand. So you're kind of taking a whole life approach because now we have to. And I suppose the challenge now is how is that 
verified throughout the lifetime of a building when you may not be there during that whole period and then you have kind of leakage which is sometimes difficult to track and, and, yeah, and monitor that is indeed uh, that's indeed a challenge uh, because of course we are in control up to a point so when sort of the equipment leaves our warehouse and it's installed sort of it gets a life on its own then yes we we may go back at the end we are looking at potentially doing sort of extra studies in terms of what happens to these kind of systems when they're in operation just to understand what are the main pain points and what are the main leakage points uh, in, in, in that regards it would be very useful for example because at the end of the day from a from an fgas point of view you have to record what's happening to an air conditioning system over its lifetime in terms of if you're doing any sort of maintenance operation if you're recharging it if you are topping it up all of those sort of steps must be recorded but at the moment that record is a piece of paper that it's left very very often on top of the unit or sort of stuck inside the case of the unit and it becomes illegible after five years could we digitize that? Would be great. Could be a tool that sort of the industry can have access to, something that you can easily sort of query and pull up and see, okay, I can see this system has gone through six maintenance episodes. This is what happened to the charge. These are all the all the steps that, uh, that happened to the unit. So that things like, for example, TM65, but EPD itself, all of these certification that do account for what happens to the refrigerant in the unit, can be essentially fine-tuned in terms of truly representing what happens in a sort of day-to-day. TM65 makes an assumption for refrigerant leakage, doesn't it? And I suppose if you have more robust measures in along the lifetime, then potentially that could change over time. I mean, um, how TM65 gets updated in the future, we we can work through. At the moment, we have three different categories of HVAC equipment that has refrigerant um, and depending on that level of category so if the refrigerant is sealed like in a heat pump uh, it's assumed you have a certain certain refrigerant leakage rate and but whereas if it's open like in a, in a VRF system then it's got a higher refrigerant leakage rate so there are some assumptions based on a long literature review of available data at the time which SIBSI is asking the industry to use across all TM65 assessments. And talking about verification, um, I mentioned it earlier that SIPSI are working on a verification for TM65, which Carl will be able to explain a little bit more. Yeah, it's it's probably worth a quick recap of how we got to this stage. Um, The technical memorandum, the TM itself, written by Clara and her co-authors, laid out a very clear methodology for the assessment of embodied carbon within building services. While reading that, one thing that occurred to me is we can actually create a digital tool from the written methodology. And that is how we created the TM65 tool, which we refer to as DT for digital tool 65. So that was created in a very simple um, spreadsheet form, which was just the outpouring of the methodology into a form that people can actually input data and get data out from. So we we kind of soft released that to industry and there was a lot of interest in it, a lot of interest. But one of the things that came back to us was that this is just what they say. Is there a method by which we can be sure that there aren't people gaming the system? And we were actually purely coincidentally approached by um, a third party verification company saying, we've had a look at this, would you like to do 
uh, a verification piece with us. And we're like, well, it's just like you took the thought right out of my head. So brilliant. Yes, we would love to. Um, so we've been working with them and with SIBSI certification because those guys are the experts in this sort of thing to create a system whereby a manufacturer can return a, a, a DT65 spreadsheet to us and we will then use one or more external auditors. We, we're not going to just use the one. We want to keep it as uh, open to the market as we can. And they will look through the responses and they will make sure that they are within the realms of the possible or the normal. And if something falls outside of that, then they will go back and ask for some form of documentation to support the claims that have been made. Um, once a thing has been verified, then we'll give a little logo or something like that for the manufacturer to use to say that, yes, yeah, SIBSI have looked at this. We know that the organisation has input valid values and the calculation has been working according to plan and according to the TM. So we can have more trust in that data. So, and, and that I think is a really important thing for the market because uh, a lot of people are tending to be distrustful of un unverified data and certainly within the European Union to make any sort of environmental claim your numbers need to be third party verified and again that was something that came to light after we started on this and again was just pure happy happenstance And so Dakin that's something you have to do I, I think across Europe do you or and in France in particular they have well I mean in general I don't think that the verification can come soon enough mm. there are many reasons for this one of one of it being that I think the more the industry start to rely on TM65 and what those values stands for the more they will naturally want to use those numbers to compare and contrast technology compare and contrast different manufacturer so they're using that as a true indicator of I want to choose the best for that specific element and as you were saying the only way to do that is if you can have 100% trust in what numbers you are presented with. Uh, we've seen the same sort of process many, many years ago. It was all about seasonal efficiencies and how you certified that. And we went through many different sort of schemes, revision, certification. Now we kind of settle on and agree starting in terms of being the lot 21. Everybody sort of follows that path. Everything is sort of certified. Everybody needs to play with the same with the same rules. So the more sort of this sort of similar concept can be translated to other areas, the, the better. Um, certainly, if you look at the next steps in terms of the EPD, that one, it is by itself sort of a third-party certified document in, in terms of in order to be able to call it an EPD and sort of be able to publish it as, a, as an EPD, it must be verified. So in that sense, it's, it's nothing new. The most important thing I would say is the certification as long as it's, it's a sort of fairly simple process that adds value rather than just be a verification for the sake of having a, a badge somewhere, if we can get to the point where we can truly sort of demonstrate that the verification adds value, then yes, we are absolutely 100% uh, for it. And as you were saying, we are not sort of as Daikin as a global company, we're not new to certifications. We have. I don't know. We are in a, in a small room. I don't think it could fit all the documents that we need to produce <laughs> for the smallest products that we manufactured on, a, on any given day. Sure. Uh, so, so yes, and in terms of it is a process, but yes, we are absolutely equipped to go through those processes. We have dedicated department back at the sort of center organization that can take care of, of all of that and give us the number relevant for, for the UK, because of course, that's the other important distinction to be made. Every sort of country 
as some sort of specific requirements in terms of how you publish the, the data. And certainly for TM65, it's critical to have data which relies on the fact that you're using electricity in the UK, that you're moving physically equipment into the UK. Um, so there's always a bit on top of sort of some of the generic data which would apply sort of across Europe, there's always a bit on top that needs to sort of be fully tailored for, for the local market. And there are TM65s for other regions now as well, aren't there? So they are being tailored for yeah, that's right. So, so, Sibsi's published a document that describes how to tailor the TM65 methodology if you're installing products in different places across the whole world. And Sibsi have published an example for Australia and New Zealand. And I think there might be one coming out in the Middle East. That's right. And so, yeah, going back to you, Carl, so how long do we see this verification process? Well, we do need to work through this with our um, certification arm. I wouldn't give a hard date because there are still a number of unknowns as to how we instantiate the process. But I would certainly hope that um, early next year we would have something available to offer to the market. Uh, But again, I don't want to put words in my colleagues' mouths and make promises that they can't fulfil. That would be wrong with me. Sure. And I was going to go back to Clara and ask her from a kind of consultant's point of view. I mean, an awful lot has been happening in the last few years, um, some of it instigated by Clara, (laughs) so she has some insight. Uh, But as as a specifier, looking at all the different possibilities with a new building or or a retrofit, are there any particular sort of trends around calling that you're seeing or or an overall strategy that you're taking at the moment? I think it's important to take this holistic approach and you first start with the building, right? You know, we are engineers, but we work with architects um, and we can influence design. We you know, you've got to work through if it's even if you're working a refurbishment or a new build, how can that building form be optimised so that you're reducing the need for cooling from solar gains? That's the first thing that you do. Then you think about do you want to introduce useful passive cooling strategies such as thermal mass within the building and how you could best do that. And then from an MEP or building services perspective, how can we naturally cool the building? And that means that we need to, even if we are relying on some active cooling, we need to make sure we're still being able to open the windows or opening some other passive vents so that we can cool the building, especially through at night time if you can't do it during the day, if you've got various constraints through noise or, for example. So that's the first thing is about how can we optimise the building form, design and systems so we get as much natural cooling as possible and then working about how can we make the active cooling systems most as efficient as possible. I think when we're looking at, you know, specifying systems, typically we've used fan core units, but there are advantages with chilled beams, so that's always looked at. And then also understanding ventilation and the strategies to to get airflow through the building. I think it was really interesting when we were talking, when Matteo was talking about refrigerants and moving from 410A to R32, which is great because that moved the global warming potential of R410A is 2088, whereas R32 is 677, so that's a massive reduction. So it's fantastic, but it's still 677, right? And I know that refrigerants, you know, we need to, the, the manufacturers are designing the systems so that they're leaking as little as possible, but you do still get catastrophic failure, you do still get leaks in some circumstances. So when we if we can move 
towards more natural refrigerants, that is where we need to be going as an industry. But I know that that is harder. There are lots of design issues that um, they probably know so much more about than I do. But depending on what the different systems are that you're using, uh, they have different constraints. So the lowest refrigerant is actually CO2 itself. So you can use CO2 as a refrigerant and it has a global warm potential of one. But I understand, so I'm, I'm not sure uh, on the details, there's some operational issues in some cases with this relate, relating to return water temperature and functionality. So that can be that can be tricky. We also have propane, but then we need to overcome the fire issue, <laughs> which is mentioned about safety. But, you know, depending on how small the refrigerant charges and what, what's that flammability, that, that can be overcome in some circumstances. So, you know, we can't just look at global warming potential. We need to look at safety. We need to look at usability as well. Absolutely. And I think that's why without sort of going too much into sort of any any specific details of sort of any release product or anything like that, but fundamentally what we are thinking very much is that there's going to be a very sort of comprehensive strategy in terms of refrigerants and which one we choose, which one we we're going to use. It's never going to be a case like we had in the past where one refrigerant can do everything. But it's going to be very much a case that each individual applications will jump on whichever one, whichever one refrigerant is the best for that specific applications. So also from an industry point of view, we certainly need to get comfortable in using sort of a, a wide variety of, of different refrigerants. So making sure that the sort of the engineers have the, the right equipment, the right knowledge, which is a, which is a fundamental sort of area where we see a big gap at the moment, but it's also an area where we're making a lot of investments uh, from as, as a diking sort of uh, from, from our point of view. We have uh, we have lots of training centers around the country. We are partnering with uh, sort of third party uh, learning organizations. So for us, training is before before we can even talk about refrigerants and equipment, we need to talk about the training side of things mm. because you cannot expect anyone to be able to sort of safely handle any piece of equipment, no matter what refrigerant it is, because every refrigerant has an aspect that you need to account for, unless they've been given sort of prior training in sort of the, the appropriate way. So that's why we're doing a lot of effort from that point of view, making sure that everyone is comfortable with, uh, with the refrigerant, how to use it, how to install it, how to properly service it, because that's the other thing that you, can, you have to account for. It's not just the initial installation, but you need to make sure that all throughout the lifetime, you have the right the right person that can have sort of hands-on experience. That can sort of make uh, sort of the appropriate uh, the appropriate maintenance, the appropriate service on the systems, and is sort of uh, sort of capable of handling whichever refrigerant is going to be there. Um, so yeah, training is going to be massively important. And choice of refrigerant, yes, you will see all sort of different options. But again, at the moment for us, the sort of the, the road is clear. R32 is, is the best choice in terms of, of the refrigerant. It's going to take us quite a lot of number of years into the future and it will certainly help us to sort of to kick start and, and sort of improve that decarbonization argument. And Andrew, just touch on safety there. And of course, we've had the Building Safety Act, which means we have to be a lot more robust about the design and building construction and um, operation of our buildings. Do you see that sort of filtering down to sustainability as well? So if you're having to be robust about the safety, then you're bound to be robust about the rest of the building, including 
sustainability features. Absolutely. So, you know, obviously we're being challenged by our clients to achieve certain numbers. So we obviously document that and we get into that particular, you know, sign-off period, etc. But we're also looking, being challenged around material passports. So we're actually mapping out what the building's going to be, you know, for its life. So that obviously feeds into what we've just been talking around about the management of the air conditioning systems, etc. So this is going to be a robust document, which then the, the building owner, the building operator can review, can understand. And that goes through the life cycle of the building. And then that feeds back into that circularity piece. But it also feeds back into the maintenance piece. So that will be a digital record of what that building is made from and how it should be operated. And how does that sit alongside the golden thread documentation that you need for the Building Safety Act? It's kind of the same... It's the same stuff but it's not quite quite integral between the two unfortunately but I think that's part of the you know, it's a new subject for all of us and we're we're paying a little bit of catch up and again you know the MEP carbon piece has been really difficult to manage you know until we get a proper structure until what's been going on with this discussion today about TM65 etc so we are paying a a bit of a catch up situation you know generally the process for MACE at the moment is a client will come to us with a challenge around embodied carbon they will have a calculation being done and then we will have a secondary calculation and we can compare and contrast and have a little bit of an argument. And until we get to that position where EPDs, TM65, which is verified, are are bottom down, so all the manufacturers are aware of all this, you know, that's when that argument piece will disappear and we can spend more time on doing the good work. You know, we can do that a good selection piece. And are you doing more kind of early involvement in the design side now? Absolutely, absolutely. So, you know, the Marks and Spencer's planning piece on Oxford Street was, was you know, a big shop for the industry. You know, that's a, that's a new direction of travel for us. We were already working in that space, so we see refurbishment, repurposing of existing structures, buildings, as being the, the way the market's going to drift quite quickly. Okay, so, yeah, so it's all of that sort of good stuff around that. We, just, we need to be tooled. We need to have the data, because we are data hungry. It's just the quality of the data today has been the case. I think it's interesting. We talk, I mean, I've been very closely involved with Golden Thread work throughout its gestation period, and obviously been heavily involved with all the sustainability pieces. And one of the messages that we hear time after time is that the data needs to live with the building. And if you put that in a different context, what you're talking about is actually a digital twin, which is a thing that I don't think has been particularly well done so far. There's a lot of people talk about digital twins, but they're not a true digital twin. But what we're talking about here is how we can collect all of this data. The data can maintain itself with the virtual representation of the built asset. And that is where we spin off aspects of that totality of data to fulfill things like our sustainability requirements, our golden thread requirements, and all of the other data requirements throughout the life cycle of the building. And this is, I think, the inexorable route that we're heading down because we have to. It's just, I think, we haven't quite gotten there yet. And your title is Head of Digital Engineering at Simpson, so... Yes. <laughs> that, that's the route that obviously we need to be going to bring all this data together so we can, as you say, spin off these different requirements from the same model. I think so, because what we have at the moment is lots of different buckets of data. 
and never the never shall these two buckets of data meet and unfortunately a lot of the data within them is exactly the same or you hope it's the same it might be the same property but it has a different value and you don't know that so i think um, for all of our sanity having some more centralized version of that is going to actually make our lives a lot easier a lot of people do view a digital twin as oh no it's another thing i have to do when it isn't it's a more sensible and rationalized way of doing the things we are already doing. So there might be a template that somebody like Sibsi would may form where all this information. You just give me another job. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much. I think it's important to add that we need to think about design requirements as well. Like often we put in all this kit to cool a building to a certain temperature, but actually you know, we, if we can relax those requirements, then there's ne- much less kit is needed and that reduces the embodied carbon and the operational carbon. So as well as thinking about the design and the systems, we think about the people and the, and the people who occupy the building and can they, are they okay to take off a, a jumper or not that they'd be wearing them in summer, but, you know, dress appropriately, not wear a tie so that they can withstand a bit but we're a bit more flexible in terms of comfort. Yeah, so we're not machines. We're not, we we're not we the aren't kids. machines, that's right. That's a very good point to end on. Thank you, Clara. And, and thank you for everybody else here. I hope that was a, a good discussion. I certainly learned quite a lot and there were some good conversations going on between our guests. So thank you again. Thank you. Thank, thank you. you.